Welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And this week we are reading two Preacher issues, plus a Hellblazer issue. <laughs> no, it's actually... I just got it. That was pretty good. Yeah, it's actually three Hellblazers, but two of them have the Preacher creative team. That is right. This is a bit of a grab bag of interstitial issues, a couple Monster of the Week kind of stories. And what a monster he is, but we'll get to that. The first issue that we're reading is Hellblazer number 56. This is the Diary of Danny Drake. This issue was written by Garth Ennis. It has art and colors by David Lloyd and a cover by Glenn Fabry. On the cover, we've got a man running across a giant diary with the looming enormous face of Constantine ahead and an enormous fountain pen hovering over him in pursuit. Yeah, I wrote, is that Orthanc? But it's not. It's a fountain pen. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Now, David Lloyd, we've seen him on Hellblazer before. He is, of course, best known as the artist behind V for Vendetta. Right. And he did the Horrorist limited series, right? Yeah, the Horrorist was... A two-issue limited series. It was really just two bonus issues of Constantine, or of Hellblazer, but it was written by Jamie Delano after Jamie Delano had left the book. It came out in 1996, which is way after where we are now, but it is included in the trades, and we covered it sort of more at the point where it takes place. Yeah, and Lloyd's art style is fairly distinctive. A lot of Dot shading, a lot of faces cast in shadow. Interesting use of light. Right. So, we open on the title page here, which shows the diary and the credits. And we get some narration here, which, surprisingly to me, the narration is not actually the diary. It's right. It's a third-person omniscient narration. Danny is not the narrator. Right. Now, the narration is explaining that Danny Drake hates keeping secrets, so he wrote them all down in a diary. Even that August night when the floor ran slick with something pink and warm. Right. Gross. Yeah. What could that be? We'll find out. Danny also doesn't like the tube, but he crashed his BMW, so now he has to take it. And when I say the tube, they're English, so I mean the subway. Right. Whereas to an American, that would just mean, you know, a reasonable portion of cookie dough. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I like that one. Yeah, so wanting to spice up an otherwise dull subway ride. (laughs) Dull commute. (laughs) Otherwise dull commute. Yeah, yeah. Danny, apropos of nothing, stands up and shouts, I'm a whoremonger! Okay, I had to check this. Normally if you monger something, that means you sell it. But it seems that in the case of whoremonger, a customer also qualifies. Yeah, I think that as a matter of fact, the word whoremonger usually refers to customers. Which makes it, yeah, it's not not your typical mongering. Right, no, he's not like Ironmonger. Yeah, or a fishmonger. Right, 
If you stood up and shouted that you were a fishmonger on the tube, that would be even harder to explain. I mean, not if you had fish with you. (laughs) Not if you had them on offer. (laughs) Right, yeah, if you had, like, a cooler full of ice. (laughs) You know? I'm a fishmonger! I think if you had a cooler full of fish on the subway, you wouldn't need to tell anybody about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Although, if you've been, you know... They're not going to smell if you've been, like, diligently keeping them on ice. Mm -hmm. So... Anyways, that is completely off topic. So he's holding forth to all the assembled commuters about his encounters with prostitutes. And one of them says, will you shut up for Christ's sake? And Danny replies, I can't shut up, you stupid bastard. He mentions here that he picked up women on the street while Daphne was pregnant. That's presumably his wife or girlfriend. And that will become important later. Right. So as Danny tries to force his way out of the train, he mentions that Daphne found my grimorium, which intrigues another passenger, John Constantine. Yep, John Constantine looks up from his paper and decides to come after the guy. Looking super Sunday comics here. Danny hides in an alley and wonders if his compulsive truth-telling is some kind of punishment. Bloody silly one if it is, mate. You look like a right arsehole. Piss off! What the frig do you know about it? John explains that what he knows about it is he knows what the Grimorium is. All about a very nasty place and the people who live there and how to speak to them. Start talking. They walk to Danny's place, which tires out Constantine, the old chain smoker. Yeah, even though he's he's got like two-month-old lungs at this point. Yeah, that's right. Totally fresh lungs. He spends a couple of panels of narration here not being impressed by Danny's classy digs. I like where Danny says, I really hope I can trust you. And John replies, Oh, for sure. Ask anyone. (laughs) Usually he says he's a nasty piece of work, ask anyone. I guess it's a good thing he didn't ask. Okay, so having made some cups of tea, Danny says that he is being haunted by his diary. He's been keeping this diary for over ten years. He writes down everything. Yeah. He says, There were good times. We'd sit and go over them together and have a laugh. Me and the diary, I mean. He had good times in the 80s, he says, doing well on the stock market and being with Daphne, his wife, who walked out on him a few years ago. Yeah, and then we hear about Ophelia. And Ophelia is so sort of dark and mysterious and striking looking that I thought she was going to turn out to be something more important than she actually is. But it turns out she's just a girl, a girl that Danny can really talk to. Right, and so... He started to tell her some of his secrets, even some of the ones he'd written down in his diary. And after a while, he didn't need the diary, so he burned it. Then she left me. So now he finds himself with this unpredictable, uncontrollable compulsion to tell people the truth, the kind of secrets he used to write down. Like, when he gets drunk, he pisses in the sink, he hates his mother's bread pudding, he buys porn mags and marijuana, that kind of thing. Yeah, we see him standing here on a table, shouting, I'm a pervert! Now, I totally get that the curse makes him tell the truth. Does it also make him stand on the table? (laughs) Does the curse demand he find proper acoustics for his truth-telling? Yeah, or is that just him? If he's like, well, if I'm gonna say this stuff, (laughs) I want to be heard properly. Commit to the bit. Right. He says the only ones who knew these things were him and the diary. That's why he thinks the diary is making him do it. Constantine says, what about the magic? You, you do believe in this stuff? 
Really? Do I ever get on with it? I... All the money from my house, I mean, my job, all my things. They, well, they didn't exactly come from hard work. You have a close-up on a haunted-looking Danny face here. So he and some friends started playing around with magic in university, but he stuck with it. It took him a month to understand one page of the Grimorium, and using it he summoned a demon, Triskeel, and sold his soul for luck and finances. And all it cost me was eternal life. I told my diary that as well. John suspects the demon might be having some fun with Danny. Sometimes they mess you about when you're under contract. They think it's funny. He tells Danny to wait at home while he investigates. Rather than just using Danny's copy of the Grimoireum, assuming Danny still has it, he goes to Chaz's lockup, where his is kept. Kit, it turns out, doesn't like having it around the house, which seems very sensible to Legit, me. Legit, yeah. His copy is annotated with Ben Cox's notes. We remember Ben from the Newcastle incident. Right, exactly. And he, he thinks, sorry, Ben, as he's looking through these precisely annotated entries on demons. Mm-hmm. He finds a picture of Triskeel, a snake skeleton with a woman's face. Worm Queen of the Succubi. Bloody hell, you know how to pick them, Danny. John opines that... Danny seems so slimy and pathetic, there must be more to the story. Then he reads Triskeel's resume and concludes that he's out of his depth. Screw me, Danny. Why didn't you just go straight to the first of the fallen and have done with it? That would take a lot of nerve. <laughs> he suspects there are more surprises in store, so he reads on, and then he says, Shit! He goes back to Danny's house. All the lights are off. This is actually really cool looking. Danny opens the door... And John is standing there in his trench coat and just asks, Why aren't you in hell? Yeah, this is a cool panel. Angry-looking Constantine with his cigarette and his firm-set face. Sexy face. Yeah. Triskeel, he explains, never gives a mortal more than five years. But Danny made his deal ten years ago. How did you get your extra five? Why don't you tell me what you wrote in your diary on that hot August night? <laughs> yeah, and, and this is kind of a cool part. John makes him talk, basically by triggering the curse. It's easy, Danny. I'll start you off. Dear Diary. I did it! Me! Ah! Danny confesses that Daphne was pregnant and angry and had found out about the hookers. He knew Triskeel was coming. His only way out of the deal would be to offer her something better. Daphne was just another frigging sinner. No good at all. But then I remembered. Our unborn child. Our innocent unborn child. He murdered his wife, ripped out the baby, ripped is the word he uses, and gave it to Triskeel. And Triskeel licked him up like he was sugar. Five more years, John says. So that is some really dark shit. Yeah. Danny, it turns out, just because he's pathetic doesn't mean he's not a terrible person. He murdered his pregnant wife and offered up an innocent soul to hell. To get himself five more years. Yeah, that's right. Danny committed some fairly horrifying crimes, and he's in the middle of another one. Now, John has deduced that there's something else going on here. He lets himself into the cellar, figuring that must be where Danny killed his wife. Triskeel's getting at you, like I thought, using the diary. Why? And, yeah, and there's, there's a panel of just a row of lowercase e's coming from a basket. And inside is a little baby. Yeah, Danny stole it from a stroller this afternoon. 
Troiskiel is coming tonight. That's what this compulsive truth-telling has been about. His warning that his time is up. John takes the basket with the baby in it. You'd better stay here, Danny. Because if you try to get out of this house tonight, I'll kill you. John meets Chaz at a bar and takes a hard drink. Well, first he drops the baby off with the old Bill. The old Bill being the police. Mm -hmm. He uh, apparently told them some bullshit story about how he found the kid hidden in an alley. Right. Made up basically a story about how the, the kid had been abandoned. But actually, totally kidnapped. Yeah, this is this is not granted a scene. He just narrates that he has done this. Why did I even try to help that asshole? Little shit sold his soul. He murdered his wife. He sent an innocent to hell, for Christ's sake. He was going to do it again tonight. But a long time ago, in a place called Newcastle, so did I. Rough night, John? Says Chaz. Yeah, Chaz. Rough night. Constantine's not being entirely fair to himself there. Danny acted with absolute intention to commit two murders. Yeah. And to sacrifice one innocent soul. John was arrogant and careless, for sure. Yeah. But he didn't actually do anything really bad on purpose in the Newcastle story. Yeah, in Newcastle he sent Astra Logue, a 10 or 11 year old girl, to hell. But he was trying to save her. Right. Although his, we talked at the time about how his intentions were not perfect. He had been sort of looking for an excuse to summon a demon. Right, and throughout that story arc, he was also very manipulative of his friends. Right. Nonetheless, not really morally comparable to what Danny Drake did. Right, so he had a little momentary sympathy for Danny until he learned how deep the rabbit hole went. So on our last page here, we get Triskeel slithering towards Danny's house. You've had your extra years, Danny. What'll you give me for five more? I... I don't have anything. How could I? You messed up my mind. You knew my diaries and you nearly sent me mad. Hmm. It was hilarious. Nothing left then, Danny. All finished. All finished. And there's only one thing left to say, Danny. And so to hell. Wonder what tomorrow will bring. There's cool art on this page, too. It's very David Lloyd. Yeah, this is actually a rad final panel. The light that seems to be pouring off of Danny as I guess he's about to be dragged to hell, which is just showing us the silhouette of Triskeel, this snake skeleton with a lady's face. Yeah, this sort of spirals. Yeah, it's fucking cool and horrifying looking, and that is a great ending to this issue. I'm really glad that this story didn't get kind of dragged out over two issues. Mm -hmm. It's really just like, meet Danny. Danny seems like an alright guy at first, maybe kind of Constantine-like. And then we find out that he's an absolute fucking monster, and he gets dragged to hell. Yep. <laughs> All in the ordinary course of business. What a good little one-off story. Mm -hmm. If it were me, I would have reversed those last two pages, so that we end on Yachaz's rough night. That feels stronger to me. Yeah, it's cleaner storytelling, too, because that way you don't have to time jump. From a Constantine scene to another Constantine scene. Right. Although you'd have to time jump from a Danny scene to another Danny scene. Yeah, they were both in the last scene before that. And it's just, Troy Skeel's lines aren't particularly witty or memorable. So it has a little more linguistic punch ending on the Constantine scene, I think. Okay. Fair enough. I, I think that it makes the Troy scene a little bit more effective. 
if she's never seen until the last page. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes, sometimes random horrifying stuff just happens in the middle pages in Constantine comic books. Okay, yeah. (laughs) And it gets a little (laughs) lost in the shuffle. So it's nice to have her weighing over the story, but only a presence in it at the very, very end. Right, exactly. All right. That brings us to Hellblazer number 57, Mortal Clay. This issue was written by Garth Ennis and drawn by Steve Dillon. Colors by Tom Zuiko. We have a cover here by Glenn Fabry. That is a tied-up dead guy. Yeah, that's about right. This kind of struck me as one of those black comedy Fabry covers, right? Like, we'll find out that the flight of these dead guys is kind of tragic, but the look on his face is just so stupid. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I'm glad that it turned out that that was a corpse. I was worried that we were going to find out that it was, like, a mentally challenged guy, Mm. which would have made that cover really not cool. Not cool in the way that preacher issues and covers often are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it would have made it not cool in the way that Garth Ennis is often not cool. Yeah. But, you know, this issue turns out to not be particularly problematic, so I'll I'll take it. (laughs) All right. So we open on ghosts unhappily watching as their corpses are prepared for some kind of experimentation. Prepared for desecration, we're told. We see a building that says Range C on the side, a fence that says Keep Out. Good thing it doesn't say Warehouse 13. And trucks full of bodies. Is that a reference to the TV show Warehouse 13? It was a reference to Full Metal Alchemist. Either way, it's not a reference I get. So one particular dead body... Jerry Connolly is being strapped into a chair. And then we get flashes of the lives of these people. Yeah, this this I thought was very effective. We see dead Jerry being strapped into a chair, and we get a flashback to 16-year-old Jerry losing his virginity. He never saw the girl again. He never forgot her either. And we're told about another victim, Anne Bishop. Worked for the civil service all her life, but she took their money and kept her soul, and she saw the world. The things she saw, most people only dream about. Yep, and we learn about Jim Masters, who never sold his seven acres. Every night he watched the sun dip behind the hills with a whiskey in his hand and Old Sal at his feet. What was he going to spend the money on anyway? Old Sal is a shaggy white dog. Mm -hmm. What's it called? A a sheep hound? Uh, Sheep dog. Sheep dog. Okay. 20 rounds, 7.62 hollow point, range 2.5, camera on. Jerry is strapped into a chair in front of a row of sandbags. And we are told that the ghosts can't look away from this, can't leave their bodies on Earth behind. Off you go, says the scientist, and Jerry's corpse is pelted with lead. Yeah, and this is, of course, Steve Dillon art. Steve Dillon does really good bodies being torn apart by bullets. It's, as the future will demonstrate, he'll do a good job of that on Preacher, and he'll do a good job of that on Punisher. (laughs) Right. Mortal Clay is the title of this issue. That's the title page. And we are told that it made heaven worthless, this kind of thing. It just wasn't fair. Elsewhere, we find John and Chaz chatting about a friend who got paid to be a sperm donor. I like Chaz's comment here. We can't all hypnotize bank managers. Yeah, Constantine narrates. Summer in London. Hot, smelly, sweaty. Lots of tourists. If it wasn't for me mates, I'd go round the bend. Uncle Tom's a dozy old sod, but he's a laugh. Tells dirty stories and stuff. Does he know the one about the wanker got paid by the tug? They come in the door. 
Uncle Tom's dog is very excited. It really is Uncle Tom. That's the guy's name. That's his name, Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom's dog is very excited for some reason, and they let themselves in and find Uncle Tom sitting in his armchair, lifeless. John narrates, heart attack. There's an ambulance, feigned concern from the orderlies, a body bag. A man's life is neatly filed away in under ten minutes. And there's poor old Chaz, with his dead uncle and his good day cut from under him. Yeah, I think I think Steve Dillon's rendition of the look on Chaz's face when he finds his uncle's body is very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they spend the day drinking. And later, when we're stumbling home, and the bitterness has all run its course, and all that's left is misery. John? Yeah? I need to ask you something. You know about all this stuff, don't you? I mean, you know the truth, not the bollocks the vicars and all tell us. Is my Uncle Tom in a better place? Of course he is, mate, Constantine says, and narrates. What the frig am I supposed to say? This isn't the time to be cynical and all bloody knowing. Yeah, and then we get a transition, and neither's this, which brings us to the funeral. Now, yeah, he doesn't actually have a lot to be cynical and all-knowing about, because we know that in the Hellblazer universe, heaven actually does exist. This Although, is true. it might not... There's definitely been plenty of hints that it's maybe not all that great of a place. Right. Constantine has often been filed as an atheist, although he knows that God exists, so he's really a misotheist. Uh, but <laughs> right. he doesn't particularly get along with heaven. And, and, on, and on top of that, we know from experience with these comics that people go to hell a lot. <laughs> yeah. So while he doesn't actually have secret knowledge of where Uncle Tom is, he's got reason to think that it's not a comforting story. Okay. Fair enough. So at the funeral, instead of going to the wake, they want to avoid the polite cups of tea and sympathy. Tea and Sympathy is a 1953 play by Robert Anderson about a student accused of homosexuality, perhaps coincidentally also named Tom. The two of them go for a walk around the graveyard, which leads to them coming back upon the uncle's grave at just the wrong moment. Yeah, they find these three guys in orange suits pulling the coffin out of the ground. Yeah, and it looks... They actually have done more than pull the coffin out of the ground. They've pried it open. They're after the bodies, not the coffins. Yeah, uh, see this guy has a crowbar in hand. Chaz sees this and flies into a rage. You dirty frigging bastards! Chaz isn't stopping to think. Gonna have to go straight in, back him up. Shit, I hate punch-ups. So John kind of starts doing... He's doing well in the first few moments of the fight, kind of accidentally, because there's a steep incline from where the two of them were to the grave below, and John can't control his momentum, so he sort of has to go spiraling into one of the grave robbers. Yeah, so they get the advantage early on, although we are reminded once again that Constantine is really no good in a fight. I like this description of his. One of them's nose-butted Chaz in the forehead. As we see this guy clutching his bloody nose. Yeah, Steve Dillon. <laughs> Steve Dillon draws really good, like, what's become of me? <laughs> Dudes, you know? <laughs> Something now, like, right, yeah. what's become of me? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? That's my uncle's body you're pissing about with, says Chaz. He's got one guy in his grips. He puts his thumbs on his eyes. I'll have your friggin' eyes out. Tell me! But even as he does so, more guys are getting out of a nearby car. We get money for him. 500 a go. It's at Stokesley. Ask them for God's sake. John, watching this whole thing, gets sucker punched. 
and the tide of the fight turns against the two of them, and they get kicked to shit. Yep, that's why I hate fighting. I'm crap at it. So they turn up at Kit's place sometime later, where she is annoyed they didn't bring her along to the fight. What have I told you two about getting into bother without me to help? Make us a cup of tea, would you? The nurse and casualty said I wasn't to strain myself. And what about you, Chaz? Does your wife know where you are? Bloody hell, Kit. You must be joking. God above. All right, two T's, but only because you're a pair of sorry agents. I like Kit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I especially like the idea that she doesn't trust the two of them to win a fight without her there to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's so fun, and I wish we saw more of her in these issues. Well, it's interesting because the comic and John are kind of treating her as his opportunity to settle down, or right, his semi-retirement. She represents the home that he can go back to, and, and the problem is, that pushes her into kind of a boring role, and she's actually objected to that role and said, I should be on your adventures. Yeah. And we don't really see her on them, at least we haven't so far. Except yeah. Except for the one ghost issue. Right, exactly. And yeah, and so she's not getting a lot of panel time during this run of issues, which is a shame because she's a very fun and capable character. Yeah. So John and Chaz make plans to go to Stokesley tomorrow. I'm coming with you on this one, okay? Now hold on. No, I won't hold on. That's my uncle's body the friggers have nicked. Now maybe you still think I'm a tosser who will never amount to anything. But I want me own back. You tell him, Chaz. Okay, okay. I know when I'm beat. Just the once, though. I'm not having you turn into my trusty sidekick or something. Quick, Chaz, to the piss-up mobile. <laughs> uh, interjects Kit. So Chaz leaves and Kit and John talk about him. He's right. I'm always treating him like a chump. I told him his uncle was going somewhere better, and now I want to make things all right for my mate, you know what I mean? But, he goes on, he's got a bad habit of getting his friends killed. Aye, but if he wants to go, it's up to him. Just make sure you come back to me in one piece, right? Right. Now we go to Bad Guy HQ. <laughs> yeah, we meet Dr. Amos. He's a blonde guy in a white suit. Please repeat that. Please repeat what you have just said. I, uh, I told the bloke where the center was, sir. What I mean, he was... Thank you, Stephen. I'm afraid I won't be paying you this week, or the next. It will be an incentive to you to make that little extra effort that's so important in an operation such as this. We find out that this is Dr. Amos. The bearded scientist from before asks him, I can understand ballistics tests up to a point, but when you're dealing with something like fifty caliber, why bother with dum-dums? We know what the effect will be. It'll blow whatever it hits to pieces. Dum-dum is a blanket term for any expanding round, so that includes both hollow points and soft points. Amos just smiles beatifically. And this looks to be poor Tom, who we now watch blown to smithereens. As Amos watches with a serene look on his face, why bother? Hmm. Next we catch up with John and Chaz, almost to the place. John's gathered some intel from the locals. It seems the lab was owned by the government until last year, then a private company bought it and fired all the locals. I want to point out before we move on, there's a throwaway line here about the bloke that had the flat below yours in Clapham with the scalp collection. Another of those unseen adventures referenced. Right. Yeah, they park and walk. They're starting to make their way across the countryside when all of a sudden John says, You hear that? Gunfire. Yeah, they run over the hill and see the facility down below them. Oh, that it? Nah, it's King Arthur's court. 
So how do we get in, smartass? Then they see a truck entering the facility and get the idea to hitchhike. You mean jumping. Yep, they run for the truck. Jump for the truck. John narrating. Engine noise drowns out the screams. We're too old for this, for Christ's sake! As they jump. Once they get inside, Chaz unwisely pulls the tarp to see where they are, or to see what they're on top of. Yeah, and it is dozens of corpses. Soft and lumpy and cold as ice. Oh, hell. Chaz jumps screaming from the truck. I don't blame him, John narrates. But Chaz is spotted by the guards, and pretty soon they are both captured. Yeah, you've got to be really careful about your timing when you're exiting a truck. Mm-hmm. Learned that from Metal Gear Solid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly Metal Gear Solid here. They're not even win-back special forces. <laughs> yeah, so the, the bad guys here take John and Chaz prisoner. Amos monologues. Once Stephen told them where we were, they would either summon the police or act independently. Fortunately for us, they chose the latter course. Well, it would appear that we may at last begin our tests on living tissue. Dun dun dun. That brings us to Hellblazer number 58. The cover here, we've got John very much alive, emerging from a sea of corpses. Yeah, that's spooky. Once again, we've got the dream team of Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, and Glenn Fabry. The colors in this issue are by Daniel Vazo, the old hand from Sandman. They still look like Tom's Wico colors to me. So, Amos is daydreaming. He's in his orchards, as he calls them, and we see him walk, smiling toward shadows in the foreground, shadows of corpses. Why does he do this, he narrates? To prove a point. Yeah, he narrates that he's grown something special here. Strange fruit that hangs rotting from invisible trees. That seems like an allusion to the song Strange Fruit, which is about lynching. Oh, okay, yeah. And lets us know that Amos is a very bad man. What he's up to is very ghoulish and dehumanizing. Yes. And we get a title page here. The title of this issue is Body and Soul, as he looks happily at all his disfigured corpses, all his desecrated corpses. Right, splash page of the orchard in full now, and it is pretty horrifying. Amos recalls somebody's words that the human body is a miracle, even in purely physical terms. But I must disagree in the strongest possible terms. He reaches out and rips into a body with his bare hand. Daydreaming, as I say. In real life, he is talking to the captured Chaz and Constantine. It doesn't matter if your friend won't tell me his name, Mr. Chandler. The same goes for his admirably icy stare. This center runs ballistic tests for a private munitions firm. Human cadavers, such as your uncle's, Mr. Chandler, are obtained illegally, more cheaply, and in greater numbers than official channels could ever allow. It is a simple matter of supply and demand. You gentlemen have attempted to disrupt the process without the aid of any wider authority. You are alone. No one will come to your assistance. You will be used in trials of various weapon and bullet types to determine the effects of high-velocity and low-velocity projectiles on a living body under fully controlled laboratory conditions. I am most grateful for your cooperation in this important step forward for the field of ballistics research. Good day. Man, you had a wonderful quality of douchebag to that voice. <laughs> yeah, Amos is a cold motherfucker. Chaz is pretty freaked here, although John looks a little more calm. Hard to say if he's just putting that on for Chaz's sake. Or his captor's sake. Or if he's genuinely got something up his sleeve. It seems as if he just knows that failure is not an option. Mm -hmm. 
Because if he got killed doing this, Kit would kill him. Yeah. <laughs> Kit would kill him if he ended up dead doing this. <laughs> and she probably actually knows enough magic to do it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, bring him back to life for just long enough that she can knock his silly head off. <laughs> you stupid fucker. <laughs> Kick the shit out of him. Yeah, um... <laughs> Before they leave the office, Amos offhandedly notes that Chaz's real first name is Frank, so he wonders why Chaz. Eh? Why are you known as Chaz? Uh, well, it's after that bloke who managed Jimi Hendrix, innit? He was called Chaz Chandler, so me mates called me Chaz too, because we've got the same last name. Kind of like a joke, know what I mean? And Amos replies, Jimi Hendrix, spelling Jimmy the standard way and Hendrix with a C and a K, Indicating that he's totally clueless as to who that is. <laughs> right. It's a complete homophone, but <laughs> nonetheless, yeah, it's well conveyed with text and John face palms. Later in the cell, Chaz makes fun of Amos for not knowing Purple Haze. Maybe he likes Floyd better. John, this is serious. That nut is going to shoot us. He said they were off to clear the ranges. We're going to die. John says he can't afford to. If I go home without you, your lovely wife's going to cut my bollocks off. Thank Christ. How do we get out, then? Out? How the bloody hell do I know? So, John's got a certain amount of confidence, but he doesn't really have a plan right now. That sounds like the John Constantine method to me. Yeah. So now we switch perspectives to a soul flying through the heavens. Imagine your first glimpse of heaven. You fell off the bridge on a warm summer night, a little too drunk to make it home safe. It goes on. You're close enough to understand. Heaven lets the good times roll forever. That first glimpse was all you got. You made an old mistake. We see the soul that was flying towards heaven look back before getting all the way there. This seems like an allusion to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were the cities of the plain that were destroyed by the power of God. Lot's wife looked back as God was destroying the city and was turned into a pillar of salt. Right. It also invokes the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Right. Which we covered in that Sandman special. Okay, so that's what's meant by an old mistake. This person looks back, and what they see, their body being destroyed by gunfire, rips them away from heaven and back to earth. Right, it makes them unable to go forward. Now, we see that this is only one of many souls that are sort of churning in the sky, caught between the two planes. Not airplanes, but planes of existence. Mm-hmm. And then there, this is where it happens, as the spirit streaks toward Range C. This is where they ruin paradise. This is where they killed you forever. That's you, and look what they've done. Look, look, look. Sensing magic, the soul bursts into the room where Constantine and Chaz are being held. Jesus! Something just went through me! Yeah, and then this screaming torso appears in the air. That's freaky. Lost, hundreds lost, caught outside heaven, nailed to the sky! This place did it, crucified them there, left them to finish, to finish forever! Having seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, John commands Chaz not to look. The ghost explodes in this blinding light, and then all that's left is a blue smoke in the middle of the cell. What? What was that? Dead soul, but it said there's more, all stuck, all gonna burst in the winds. This place, they're desecrating the bodies and it's buggering up the souls. They can't get into the afterlife, they're stuck. And at this point... Realizing what he has said, John and Chaz both remember the exchange between them before. John? Yeah? I need to ask you something. You know about all this stuff, don't you? I mean, you know the truth. 
Let the bollocks the vicars and all tell us. Is my Uncle Tom in a better place? Of course he is, mate. Yeah, that's a really effective callback, and some lovely facial expressions from Steve Dillon here, too, conveying John's sorrow and guilt at having lied to his friend. John apologizes. He does a bit of magic with the knife that Chaz keeps hidden in his shoe. Well, he, he cuts a circle into the wall, then cuts his hand and spreads blood in the center of it. Yeah, and whatever he's done here, this is a bit of magic that lets the souls return. And we get a two-page spread of what John calls the soul storm. The anguished faces screaming in the sky above the facility. Yeah, this is awesome. A ghoulish light cast on these lovely hills by this giant ghostly presence in the sky. Yep, it's scary and disturbing and beautiful all at once. So the vengeful spirits come streaming out of the circle on the cell wall. Yeah, and they are back for the four R's. Release, rage, revenge, and revenge. You said revenge twice. I like revenge. <laughs> they head straight for Amos and... Oh my god. It's you. Confronted by dozens of ghosts, Amos comes to a realization. I was wrong. I thought you were just meat and I was wrong. You're so perfect and I've hurt you. I didn't know I was causing so much pain. The souls turn to leave. Don't go. Don't go, please. One, seemingly the young man that we just saw shot to pieces, turns and offers his hand. Thank you. In the cell, Constantine says that the souls are free. Uncle Tom, too. That's all I wanted to know. They also conveniently have blown a hole in the wall, so Chaz just walks out. He walks past a guard with a gun. The guard just gives it to him without any trouble. Yeah, he's eyes wide. He's apparently too stunned to object. Everybody in the facility seems to be either shell-shocked or sitting crying quietly. Yeah, John walks past a, an open door, and inside he sees the scientist from before, the one I've been doing with an American accent. The bearded guy. Yeah, he has his head in his hands. He liked it. I, I wondered why he did it, you know? The same tests over and over, the dumb-dumb trials where we knew what would happen, and he made us do it. He just loved seeing it. Loved seeing bodies shot to pieces, butchering them like they were animals. John makes a smart-ass remark. Might have been worse. He might have been shagging him. That'd be disgusting. Chaz closes in on Amos' office. He keeps saying, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And as Chaz enters the office, we see now that Amos has thrust his fingers into his eye sockets and is smiling as he bleeds all over his face and his clothes. I'll have your eyes out! Ugh. Yeah, that's a callback. Chaz tries to shoot him, apparently without success. Yep, the gun goes click. Ah, sod it. He turns the gun in his hand, grabbing it by the barrel, and uses it as a club. And we just see the stock deteriorating to pieces between swings with the force of how hard Chaz is swinging it. Yeah. Very effective. Yeah, that's another really effective layout. John waits outside the facility, desperately hoping Chaz won't ask why. Why he said Uncle Tom was in a better place when he was here. Don't blame me, Chaz, and don't ask me why, please. And Chaz doesn't. He just walks out and asks for a cigarette. Yeah, so that was, that was pretty nice. Yeah, that was creepy and had some, some lovely art in it. I don't think it's going to end up being the most memorable Hellblazer storyline we've ever read, mm -hmm. but it was a good one. Yeah, it's nice to see 
some focus on the relationship between John and Chaz. And I think that relationship has really changed under Garth Ennis's pen. I mean, we really only saw Chaz as someone that Constantine occasionally exploited for a ride or for muscle under Jamie Delano. Now we actually see them needling each other, going to the pub together, backing each other up in trouble, really acting more like friends. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's like Jamie Delano is this sort of almost existentialist writer mm -hmm. whose preoccupations are like loneliness and futility and mortality, you know? Yeah. Whereas Garth Ennis, one of his artistic preoccupations is like male friendships. Yeah, he's sort of more humanist in that way. And I think the Christmas issue was a really good demonstration of that. Right. But yeah, these sort of strong relationships with a strong emotional core that remains hidden and the display of masculinity between the members, between right. John and Chaz or between Jesse and Cassidy, that's something that we keep seeing. Yeah. Billy Butcher and Wee Huey and the boys. Mm, okay. Frank Castle in the 60. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Chaz provides something of a moral compass for John here. Not in that he's particularly more moral a person, but in that making it right for his friend is something that really matters to John in the way that, you know, he doesn't trust the sides of either good or evil in the grand struggle. But sticking up for his friend is something he can do. Yeah, and I think that maybe Chaz is kind of more moral. Okay. Because this, the two of them kind of fall into that old trope where Chaz has, like, he's not all that bright, but he's got common decency, mm. whereas Constantine is a bit too clever sometimes. Okay. And so, yeah, he needs, he needs Chaz to set him straight on certain things. Like, of course, I'm coming with you when you go to get my uncle's body back from the grave robbers. Right. Yeah, and reasonably subtly done, but without Chaz, John would have been in real trouble, because he needs Chaz's knife to make it work. That's true. Yep. What do you think of Dr. Amos? What do I think of Dr. Amos? You mean, do I think he's a good character or not? Yeah, as a villain. I don't know. It's always fun to see guys who are kind of affably evil, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, and his his politeness has a sort of a fuck-you, upper-class condescension to it yes so it's not he's not really that affably evil yeah that's a good point that it's really effectively conveyed in dialogue how he is immaculately polite and every time someone deals with him it's kind of a pain in the ass to do so right yeah i'm tempted to say that he really is just kind of he, he's he's without malice you know i almost said he's just a businessman and that's not true because he likes he does you know get off on watching the corpses get blown to shit which mm -hmm. is which is weird and gross but he has like he has no particular malice in it mm -hmm. he's just like he's just gonna do this thing because it's it's his job and he loves his work <laughs> hmm i guess i kind of i guess i kind of read it another way the way that he reacts when he sees the ghosts like it it's very clear that he's an atheist character and not, not a believer in anything spiritual whatsoever mm -hmm. and so it struck me as kind of striking his blow for his beliefs that he happily destroys human meat by destroying it he proves that, that there was nothing to it but meat after all oh okay that's an interesting take on it i did think that it was kind of weird trying to give him this like spiritual aspect at the uh the last minute okay 
you know, kind of trying to shoehorn in a spiritual story or a spiritual uh, character arc. But yeah, I think the way you're looking at it makes sense. And we get kind of kind of an archetypal supernatural story ending in which the unbeliever character is confronted by the incontrovertible evidence. <laughs> right. Yeah. It never pays to be cynical and all-knowing in a horror comic book. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it barely pays to be anything else in a horror comic book either, <laughs> because it's a horror comic book. <laughs> yeah. You got a Constantine moment? I think for me, the most Constantine moment is just the whole, like, yeah, I have no plan, but <laughs> I gotta get us out of out of this, because otherwise our wives will kill us. <laughs> This is the moment where genius usually strikes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I picked uh, asking Kit for a cup of tea. The doctors told me not to strain myself. Yeah. <laughs> he's such a dick to women. He is. And it's like, he knows he's in trouble. He's come back. He's obviously had his ass beat. And Kit's going to be pissed at him for getting in this fight. So why not just push it a little further and demand something from her right as soon as you get in the door? Right. Just really earn that ball punch that you're going to get in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, John continues to rock the boat in our next Hellblazer episode, Guys and Dolls. But first, I love us. Guys and Dolls. It's a good show. But first, join us next week. Preacher! Uh, that's right, as Jesse and Tulip and Amy are tall in the saddle. Oh, we're doing tall in the saddle. That's going to be fun. Bird Guys is written and hosted by me and Eric. Our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us with questions or just to chat about comics, you can reach Eric on Twitter at vertiguys. You can reach me at blankcastsean, or you can send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. Wherever you are listening to our show, why don't you give us a good rating, a good review? Help spread the word about Vertiguys. Tell your friends. Make a ruckus. Make a ruckus for Vertiguys. <laughs> is that going to be the next shirt? <laughs> I, I, yeah, now, now it is, yes. As usual, thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, the Hail Hydra moment was funny. Yeah. America's ass. So I thought that actually could have been better. That could have been tighter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>